Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. On April 1st, 1950, about 144,000 census takers fanned out across the United States to count the people. Each conversation they had was reduced to a handwritten entry on a form. Now, 72 years later, the National Archives has released those manuscripts. You can find Marilyn Monroe, Jerry Garcia, maybe a long-forgotten relative in these pages. But the count represents more than an exercise in genealogical spelunking. It's an American political tool that's been in force since 1790. We'll talk to historians about what they hope to find in the 1950 census and why it's important. And then we'll hear the story of KGUA, Native American Radio, straight out of Gualala. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I like to know where I am, not just in space, but also in time. So as soon as I knew the 1950 census was available, it was irresistible for me to look up who lived in our house before us. Within seconds, I had my answer. Richard and Evelyn Steuben, who spent time in our walls after years at Berkeley and before, as a Google search revealed, they moved to Lafayette and then Mexico City, where, as it turns out, they were probably living when I was born there. This is, of course, just but one of millions of connections and hidden stories that these new detailed census records provide. And historians, professional and amateur alike, We'll be pouring over them for, well, really, kind of for the rest of time. And here to help us understand why the release of a new set of records is such a big deal to historians, we have two of the best in the field. Den Bauk, Associate Professor and Chair of the History Department at Colgate, as well as author of the forthcoming book, Democracy's Data, The Hidden Stories of the U.S. Census and How to Read Them. That's out in August. Welcome, Dan. Hi, thanks for having me. We're also joined by Margot Anderson, Professor Emerita in History at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and author of really the, the defining work in this genre, The American Census, A Social History. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So before we get to this exact 1950 release, I just want to talk a little bit about the census generally. Uh, Margot Anderson, what is our census and how unusual is it in world historical terms? The U.S. Census was the first census um, in a modern state to uh, routinely collect the information about the population. Um, It's written into the Constitution in 1787. We did the first one in uh, 1790, and we've taken a census of the American population every 10 years ever since. Uh, We use that to apportion seats in Congress, uh, draw the new district lines, and then states and local governments do the same thing at the state and local level. So it's a very big deal. Dan Belk, you're a historian of personal data and bureaucracy, (laughs) which uh, personal data, that's what bureaucracy is on, really. Uh, How do you see the census as a governing tool? 
So, I mean, one of the things that's really striking, Alexis, when you think about the way you opened us with thinking about those 144,000 some people wandering around uh, trying to find 150 million people, counting them each one by one, it is, I mean, when you think about it, it's just such a striking testament to, to empiricism, to facts, and to basing democracy on that fact, uh, on those sets of facts, the idea that governance will be, will be premised on this. So there's there's no more fundamental data set to our democracy. And as Margot is pointing out, right, the, the reason the census exists is because the Constitution uh, built into its assumptions the idea that representation should be founded on population. Now, it, it also immediately bastardized that and perverted it by by saying that only that um, enslaved people would count as only three fifths of a person that all uh, American Indians would not count at all. But the the kind of the, the ur premise was there that each person had to be counted, we needed personal data in order to make democratic governance possible. Wow, It's really the statistical basis for the state. Dan Bob. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, it's the, I, there are a lot of ways, and I think one of the things that we encounter when we, when we take a sentence, census, when we ask ourselves to be counted, when we try to, to fit ourselves in there, where it can be uncomfortable and it can be difficult to figure out how to make oneself fit the categories we're given. And yet, if we didn't have this thing, if we didn't fit ourselves into these categories, there'd be no other way in which we could, uh, I mean, equitably make sure that each person had a voice, each person had a count. Um, and beyond that, because it is such a fundamental piece of our data structure, the way in which it sees people comes to have a formative effect on how we see ourselves over time. So the kind of racial categories, the ways in which it constructs um, ways of uh, relationships, uh, um, income categories, all that stuff kind of cycles back and then informs how we understand what it means to have an identity over the course of a couple hundred years. Yeah. Margo Anderson, what did we get this system where there are these huge data releases, you know, made available 70 plus years after the fact? Like, how did we develop this, the ways of both enumerating and publishing those counts as required by the Constitution so that all the political things could happen. And then this second, more, I guess I want to almost call it narrative release. Well, the the um, one thing that um, Dan and I work on is, um, in some sense, they put this in the Constitution and mandated that the government do it before anybody knew how to do it. And so the, the most of the censuses were um, in the 19th century were done, um, you know, fairly minimally and fairly publicly. And the information was actually collected and posted in public places, uh, which was their only check on um, accuracy at the time. And um, the, you know, so that the Americans learn how to do what they're um, democratic theory uh, mandates, namely that we, the people of the United States, you know, create and authorize the government. We sort of figure that out over time. Um, the US, the other point that I think is important here that Dan alluded to is the US is a rapidly growing and demographically diverse population right at the start and ever since. 
So if the American population was like stable and uniform, this wouldn't be very interesting. But the fact that we grow, and in the 19th century, it was 30 to 35% a decade, we spread west, um, we get new people coming in, uh, we conquer new territories, mm -hmm. and each time we retake, take a census again, then we have to integrate those new people and simply the fact of them into the population. Um, I, I, a little statistical fact I use is that by 1880, there are 50 million Americans. There were only 3.9 million in um, 1790, but they were, you're doing it by hand as late as 1880. In other words, the poor census office um, and the clerks in Washington are sitting there going one, two, three, four, hash mark, one, two, three, four, hash mark trying to add up all the information that they've collected. That actually spurs the technology of what came to be called machine tabulation, which turned into IBM, and by 1950, computers. So there's all sorts of other yeah. um, aspects to the problem of uh, implementing the political mandate uh, uh, in the, the, from the Constitution that are quite interesting and have left us with, you know, the, where we are now. Counting people just turns out to be quite difficult and actually really both politically significant, technologically complicated, logistically uh, just almost unimaginably complex. It's, it's such a fascinating field you're in. We're talking about the census and the release of the manuscript pages from the 1950 census. We are joined by Margot Anderson, Professor Emerita in History at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and author of The American Census of Social History, as well as Dan Balk. Associate Professor and Chair of the History Department at Colgate and author of the forthcoming book, Democracy's Data, The Hidden Stories of the U.S. Census and How to Read Them. We'd love to hear from you. Have you looked for your family in the 1950 census? What would you hope to find if you looked up your neighborhood or your house in the 1950 census? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So I've got a poem here that I know Dan Bauck at least loves. And we're going to play it, and then we'll get a chance to talk about it now and, and after the break. This is Margaret Walker reading the Langston Hughes poem, Madam and the Census Man. Madam and the Census Man. The Census Man, the day he came round, wanted my name to put it down. I said, Johnson, Alberta K. But he hated to write the K that way. He said, what does K stand for? I said, K, and nothing more. He said, I'm going to put it K-A-Y. I said, if you do, you lie. My mother christened me Alberta K. You leave my name just that way. He said, Mrs. with a snort, just a K makes your name too short. I said, I don't give a damn. Leave me in my name just like I am. Furthermore, rub out that Mrs. too. I'll have you know I'm madam to you. That was Margaret Walker Alexander reading the Langston Hughes poem, Madam and the Census Man. What do you hear in that poem, Dan Bauck? 
I mean, I do. I love that poem. I also happen, I have in front of me, I'm looking at the 1940 census record for Langston Hughes. And so I happen to know that in the apartment next to his lived someone named Alberta Maynard, uh, who was the head of the household. She was listed as a file clerk in 1940. And I can't help but wonder that Alberta Maynard might have been in some way an inspiration for this Langston Hughes poem. Um, I love this poem because, I mean, what I hear here is the thing that I think we've all encountered when we tried to fill out forms or had someone come and talk to us and 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 we we experienced it in different ways but that every time we encounter a, a bureaucracy asking us to make ourselves known to it it asks us for a name and there's these questions right what name do i offer here who am i at this particular moment uh it asks us to uh, put ourselves in context and then to fit ourselves within a series of categories and in each of those moments, it can be contentious like this. It oftentimes turns out to be a kind of negotiation between us and the form or us and the enumerator, the person talking with us, the census taker. And so what I see at this in this poem is an illustration of, for Hughes, thinking about what it's like to be a woman uh, in Harlem, presumably being enumerated and thinking about the the indignities that one faces generally, and then trying to make sure that one can, in the face of here, in this fundamental democratic moment, be sure that one's given the respect one deserves. Uh, I mean, that, that is one of the things that really strikes me. We're talking about the National Archives release of the 1950 census with Dan Bauck, associate professor and chair of the history department at Colgate, as well as Margot Anderson, professor emeritus in history at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She's the author of The American Census, A Social History. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about the census and the release of the manuscript pages from 1950. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined by Dan Bauck, Associate Professor and Chair in the History Department at Colgate University, as well as Margot Anderson, who is the author of The American Census, A Social History. We'd love to hear from you if you've looked into the 1950 census, the genealogists among us. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Six, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Uh, Marco Anderson, maybe we can talk about the release itself. What What is being released by the National Archives here, since obviously we've known the count of the population in 1950 for quite some time? 
What we're getting um, and what we got on April 1st were um, the microfilm scans that were made in the early 1950s of the original paper that the enumerators um, walked around and filled out. So the Census Bureau, um, um, as we've described, sends people um, and um, they don't do this as much anymore, but they then sent humans out to every single address that they could find and then and collected on very large arts book size paper information about each individual. Um, those pieces of paper were then sent to Washington and were trans the information was transferred to IBM punch cards. <coughs> the punch cards were then used to tabulate the statistics and the counts and the cross tabulations. From the Census Bureau's perspective, um, the paper isn't very useful anymore. So it was bound up in books and microfilmed and sort of put away for reference. Um, in the 1960s, um, the paper itself was destroyed and the microfilms were delivered to the National Archives where they have remained under seal for 72 years, according to the agreement between the archives and the Census Bureau. So what we're getting are the, the is the handwritten stuff. So we can actually see, um, you know, as the enumerators sort of walking down the street, um, crossing things out, misspelling things, all of that stuff is there. I did a little noodling so myself and, um, the other day and it's quite revealing. What, what do you think it reveals? Well, it, what it reveals is um, what you can't see from the statistics is uh, the the actual household relationships because the enumerators were told to list the head of the household and that and usually that was a man and that was what so he went first then he, if if there was a spouse the spouse went second then the children then and then there was an order uh, uh, for anybody else who lived there other relatives borders or lodgers and so forth so you can actually see the constitution if you will of of the family groups um, you can see who the next door neighbors are um, and you can also see when the enumerator um, went to a house and there was nobody there and wrote in the margin um, uh, nobody at home, I have to come back, basically. So all of that, <laughs> that kind of information, which, which what doesn't show up in the statistics, which are, um, you know, draw, done from the punch cards, tabulated the punch cards is new. Yeah. Dan Belk, I mean, you love these census stories, you have website, you've got a book coming out about kind of how to read a census. What do you do when you open up the 1950 census manuscript page? What do you start looking for, and, and how do you start to make sense of it? Well, uh, Margaret already pointed to one of the really exciting things to do, which is to look and see how it is that people are explaining themselves, and especially, and especially their relationships to one another. So I've got, for instance, one of the uh, first people I went to look for was a person named Margaret Scattergood, uh, she's a character in the book, but she's also someone who I've often been, for a long time, been fascinated with. She lives in Virginia in 1950, in um, kind of rural Virginia. We know a little bit about her later life because the Washington Post discovered that the house she lived in was later sold to the CIA and became and is now on the CIA campus. Uh, but she is listed in the 1950 census as the partner 
to a woman, Florence Thorne, with whom she was she lived as a partner for quite a long time, along with their African-American maid, May Allen, which was also the same in 1940. And this this partner category is one of these things that I'm I'm quite fascinated with as a thing which might be a kind of evidence of, well, it's certainly an evidence of queer households if we use queer very kind of broadly defined to be folks who didn't fit in that normative male-headed household that um, Margot is talking about. Because it, it's, to Margot's point, it's not just that the head of the household is usually a man, but that the, the instructions of the census by default assume that a, that a man is going to be a head of household and then assume the, the next category in the instructions is wife, not spouse. And so the census we, we now take today has worked quite hard to try to remove a lot of those uh, patriarchal and uh, heterosexual assuming assumptions out of there, um, but they're still in there. And so when I, when I look at these forms, I take a person like Margaret Scattergood and I just start to try to dig through the layers. I think of this as a series of political layers. I know that somebody, a group of people involved Congress, people in the Census Bureau, experts got together, they came up with the questions on this form. Then somebody came, an enumerator came and talked to a person and they had to negotiate together like in that Madam of the Census poem. So there's politics there and figuring out how to make the answers. And then there's another layer of politics because I know later on, as you said, these are going to be tabulated together and turn out into a series of official statistics. And all of the partners, people like Margaret Scattergood, are going to disappear because they're going to get bucketed together with lodgers and other folks. And so it's only now in 1950 that we can that we are able to come and see all the people who, for whatever reason, labeled themselves a partner, or labeled themselves a son and a uh, stepson, and all uh, other kinds of uh, there will be undoubtedly some concubines uh, that like otherwise don't show up in the tabulated census. That this is the first time we're going to be able to see them. Margot Anderson, Professor Emerita in History at University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. You know, one interesting thing about the 1950 release is that it now will include Native Americans who were tallied on separate Indian mm-hmm. reservation schedules. Can you talk about, oh, I know that there was a very fraught relationship with the Native American population and how it was counted or not counted throughout yeah. time. Yeah, it's a, and I am not an, a, a great expert on this, so I'm going to give you the the sort of um, very high level overview. It's, it's, again, it goes back to the Constitution because, um, and actually before the Constitution, the question in the 18th century was, um, are Indians, are the native population part of the American polity? And the, the solution was, no, they're not. Um, they are separate sovereign nations, which is why much of the treaty work and the, you know, that was done through the State Department Literally, it's sovereign nations talking to each other. That it comes up actually even before the Constitution in Congress over whether Indians should pay taxes. And the phrase in the Constitution is Indians not taxed, which essentially um, acknowledges that Indians do not owe tax obligations to the American state. And when that tax obligation was transformed into a representational um, metric, right, in 1787, what you got was then you don't count them at all, right? So the Indians are, are the one population that are not that are explicitly excluded from uh, the process of taking the census, which has incredibly damaging effects because it's not as if there wasn't a, a, a very, very substantial uh, indigenous population in the, on the North American continent, but we just didn't record it. So 
what happens, of course, is that becomes increasingly untenable and um, we end up uh, beginning to um, count Indians who are, who do um, pledge allegiance to the American state. Then we finally set up in the late 19th century separate Indian um, um, censuses and at a, you know, in other parts of the government, a debate over whether Indians are citizens. And so what you're seeing here is the very fraught results of that 150 year process of the, the separate status of the indigenous American population. Thank you for that, Margot Anderson. I wanna bring in our first caller, uh, Peter from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Yes, hi. Um, I, very interesting show. Um, I wanted a couple of points. First of all, what are the different questions that are being asked today versus what sorts of questions were being asked beyond just headcount? Like, do you have a telephone? Do you have a toilet? Do you have running water? And so on. I'm sure those were similar. Those were sorts of questions then asked. And I have a concern that um, actually that today's questions on computers and computer ownership are inadequate to really gauge whether somebody has a good connection. Just having a device and even a connection isn't necessarily a sign that you have good access to the Internet. And then the other thing is you mentioned earlier how to read between the lines. I'm sure there were people who tried to avoid, and I know people today who have tried to avoid, like hell, the the census person, the census man, and I'm wondering what you might be able to read or discover about what was assumed or surmised about the people. I think the census is supposed to figure out and make multiple approaches, but then go by what neighbors say and so on, so that they can figure out, well, this apartment never answered or this house never answered, but we understand that there's one person or three people or something like that living there. Great questions. Thank you so, thank you so much for that. Why don't we start with the question about the questions that are that were asked back then versus the questions today. And Dan Balk, why don't you take a crack? Sure. Yeah, uh, Peter, those are great questions. Um, I mean, one of the striking things is most people who took a 2020 census, who filled out the 2020 census form, if you can remember, and many of you won't remember doing this because people often don't remember that they did this, even though they usually did. Uh, you, were, you were only asked really basically seven questions, um, which would seem like very basic questions about your name, age, some racial characteristics uh, and relationship to the first person listed in the head of household, this sort of thing. Uh, Peter's right that there is information gathered about things like do people own computers and computer ownership or access to the internet, for instance. But that kind of information is gathered through the American Community Survey, which is a statistical sample that can draw on uh, I think it's only a couple percentages of the, United, of the United States population, but it asks those questions every year. So it can give us a, a much more uh, up-to-the-date picture of what's happening. Now, 1950, uh, the census we're talking about, is significant in that line because it is um, it is the, the second census to employ sampling, and it employed a much larger sample than the 1940 census, which had been the first. It, that had used only a one in uh, one in five, or sorry, no, one in five percent, a one in twenty um, sample, and the 1950 census used a one in five person sample, I believe. Uh, and so the uh, part of the idea here, part of the thing was up until the 1940 census, Congress kept asking new questions. And again, the politics here, right? And if you look in the late 19th century, the questions were often a lot of the sheet, a, a physical paper census sheet was filled up with questions about the 
where a person's uh, parents were born, what mm-hmm. their um, their primary language was, because Congress was concerned about immigration and was going to lead to immigration restriction at the end at the early 20th century. By this period, in the 1940s, 1950s, there's more about people's economic lives, whether they work, what their incomes are. These could be contentious questions, but you can see that that turn towards being the government feeling like its responsibility might be to keep people employed or to give them economic power. Uh, but this, but sampling was a way to try to continue to ask, ask more questions without, as you were running out of space on this piece of paper. Uh, we finally now, though, got into this place where uh, after a number of years, now we ask, we all only answer a very short number of questions, uh, but then we rely on a statistical sample to fill in a, a much wider variety of, of kind of information that we can use for governance. Margo Anderson, as we think about both the college question about avoiding the census man, we think about these questions that were asked and the details. I understand that you've shown, along with some other historians, that census records were used by the U.S. government to find Japanese-Americans and then turn them. Obviously, that had a huge effect here in the Bay Area. Can you talk about the, the that process and then if and when protections were introduced? For the 1950 census, for example, did people know that that had happened slash were there protections in place at that point? Yeah, this is a really complicated question because the question of whether, you know, uh, of, of, you know, um, of individuals responding and their unwillingness to them or the inability of the Census Bureau to find them is a really complex one. And it goes back to the 19th century. I mean, Thomas Jefferson and, and George Washington have con- have correspondence about, oh gosh, you know, this is really hard to do. So that's one, one piece of it. And there's a huge research tradition on this. Uh, the one example I use a lot is, um, trying to figure out how many people were killed during the American Civil War, um, huh. uh, right? Yeah, how do we know? And what, what be, when we have data systems that basically are taken every 10 years and um, historians have been very, very involved in this because we need to use old census records a lot and we need to account for both double enumeration and under enumeration. Um, there's also a tradition of what is called padding uh, in other words, making up people um, and so forth. So it's a really complex issue. Okay, what happens um, is that by the 20th century, there's a, a basic sense that um, all this information should u- be used for what um, Congress and the Census Bureau calls statistical purposes. In other words, it's not to be used for, and this is the language of the time, taxation, regulation, or investigation. Right. And this was a way of, 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 you know, telling people, no, this you you should you should feel free to answer. This is a democratic process. Now, uh, and that's in statutory law, starting in about early 20th century and into the 1920s. The problem was that that during the two world wars, World War One and World War Two, Congress essentially sort of said, ah, we really need this information for national security, and that was the framework that um, uh, um, it, that led to the Census Bureau collaborating with the Army uh, in the Presidio in San Francisco to produce small area tabulations that allowed for the, the roundup and evacuation of the Japanese American uh, ancestry population. So that was done. Uh, it was, everybody knew it at the time. 
uh, that that was happening. Every um, uh, it was legal, and it was only many 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 years later, um, really, when the Japanese American redress movement got going in the seventies and eighties, that anybody really looked at it hard and said, "Boy, this this, this is not good." So there's a in, there are some interesting historical questions on that, which I've written about a a, a great deal. Mm. It's still an issue, um, and um, from my perspective, it's one that um, we as Americans should be talking about. Um, Mary tweets, uh, just because of our discussion around Native Americans and taxation and, and the census, just wants to make sure that people know Native Americans pay taxes. <laughs> it's a popular myth. They absolutely do pay income taxes, just yeah. like no, every, everybody else. Just a, just a clarification. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Let me clarify that. That was, that's exactly, that was exactly what had to be clarified. That, that the uh, indigenous population were in fact um, citizens just like everybody else and therefore um, uh, were part of the state. Dan Bauck, just as we come uh, up to uh, end of our segment here, how are people going to find this? You know, I think a lot of people have gone to Ancestry.com, but this is at the National Archives, right? Yeah, uh, the this is a great story of government government technology. I think working really really well. Uh, if you go to 1950census.archives.gov, uh, you don't have to go through uh, Ancestry or any other um, private service. You can look there directly. There's a search mechanism by which you can try to find people based on their name using their name and a location. If you have a general idea of where they might live, you can often find some people. But right now, those names are being automatically read using optical character recognition, a really advanced and, and impressive technology, but still quite spotty. So it's quite <laughs> likely you won't find people who you're looking for, uh, in which case it's it's smarter to do what Alexis did and to start with your address, look at a map. You can find maps there and you can kind of figure out where you are and find people you're looking for. Yeah. We've been talking about the census with Dan Balk, associate professor, chair of the history department at Colgate University's new book coming out to Democracy's Data, as well as Margot Anderson, professor emerita in history at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, the author of The American Census, A Social History. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? 
The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.